Well, good morning. Good to see you all. And uh, if you have your Bible, I'd like to invite you to open them to the book of Acts chapter 7. You know, the church began to grow. The uh, disciples were overwhelmed. They picked seven guys to help them with taking care of the church. Well, one of the things you need to remember is whenever God picks you, he never leaves you there. He continues to add into you. The Bible says from glory to glory. That's what God does. He grows you into what he wants you to be. Now, we remember they started initially, these seven, starting in chapter 6. They were the ones that were waiting tables. And yet, the Bible tells us Stephen was somebody that God began to really pour his spirit upon insomuch that people began jealous of him. The Sanhedrin, he was doing miracles. And so they captured him, they grabbed him, and drug him into court. And they accused him of some pretty crazy things. Now, they were half-truths, and those are always the hardest thing to correct. Where there's an element of truth in what is said, but most of it is a lie. Sounds a lot like our American news media today. They never tell you the whole story. They only tell you part of the story. Well, to bring you to the wrong conclusion, well, that was exactly what they were doing to Stephen. And so let's pray. Father, as we go to your word this morning, just ask you that you would anoint it, that we would remember it, God, that it would change our lives, and Holy Spirit, that you would empower us now to remember these things May you change our lives, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. We remember that he brought before the Sanhedrin, and Stephen is accused by these evil people. If you want to look at verse uh, uh, chapter 6 real quick, verse 11, it says, They secretly introduced men to say, um, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. He stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and they brought him into the council. They also set up false witnesses and said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place, against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, change the customs which Moses delivered to us. That's what his charge was. Now, the rest of seven, starting in chapter seven and the end of the chapter, we find Stephen addressing these exact issues. Now, friends, that's important because in our world today, and especially, I don't know if you've ever seen politicians, uh, the, the, the debates, it's always amazing to me. They will ask him a simple question. Do you support this and whatever it might be? And you get around about the mulberry bush. You'll never get an answer because they don't want to answer the question. Stephen, on the other hand, when he was accused concerning the degradation of Moses and the temple, this holy place, this defense that he gives to them describes what really is going on. We remember that he talked about that God spoke to Abraham in the wilderness long before there was ever a temple built. He said, come out from among your people. I will make of you a great nation and you'll be a blessing to the whole world. He didn't say that in a temple. He said it in the wilderness. Then when God spoke to Moses 
Moses was not addressed by God in the temple, but in the wilderness speaking to a burning bush. Now, what's important here is people like to idolize anything. Now, this is something to me that's always amazing. You can take anything and make it an idol. I know people that have made the Bible an idol in that they don't read it. But boy, you know, we have it sitting there on the coffee table at home. You know, it's got locks of baby hair, $2 bills, and the family tree. We never read it, but oh, it's, it's God's word. They idolize the book, but they don't know the author. You'll find this all the way through the Bible. You'll find it around the world today. They will take, and this is where idolatry gets so ridiculous. In the Old Testament, the prophet says, with one piece of wood, you'll cook your beans on it, and the other part of the wood, you'll carve it and make it an idol and worship it. How ludicrous, he says, does this get and what idolatry does? It blinds you to the fact of what's really going on. The Bible doesn't want, God doesn't want us to worship him with the remembrance of idols. Now, here's why. God is so much bigger than our thoughts, imaginations can be. The Bible says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What building will you build for me? God is bigger than those things. And so when we have to have an idol or a religious icon to remind us of what God is or looks like, it shows us how small our God has become. Because again, when we look at the expanse of heaven, heaven is my throne. You look at heaven, you look at the stars, you go, wow, God, you are big. God's amazing. You know, I saw there with all these new um, uh, telescopes that they're putting in outer space now, and they're finding like like our solar, our whole solar system is only like two percent or one percent of the vastness of all of what space is. And yet, the Bible says God began it all. So when I look at this, we find Stephen addressing the greatness of God. And their total disregard for Moses. They're sitting there bragging about Moses. This is something they were always doing to Jesus. Well, Moses taught us, or our father Abraham. Not really realizing how the people didn't listen to Moses at all. So let's look at this. Chapter 7, we'll pick up where we left off last week. We find this in verse 35. This Moses, they rejected, speaking of the people of Israel. They rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge literally over us? Now it is interesting. It is the same, the, and you got to remember the Sanhedrin that Stephen is addressing right now, just a little bit before they were doing the same thing to Jesus. And so we find the words that Stephen were saying were echoing that which Jesus said as well. Hey, I can just see him saying, well, this isn't the first time we've heard this. Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Because that's what we said concerning Jesus when they looked at him and said, who made you? We have only one king and that's Caesar. Remember? So what is amazing to me is now Stephen, via that invisible Holy Spirit, is mimicking or repeating or affirming to the Sanhedrin exactly what Jesus had already told them. 
So he says, who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one that God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Speaking of Moses. He brought them out after he had shown them wonders and sign in the land of Egypt and the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear. This is he whom in the congregation in the wilderness, the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our fathers, the one who received the, li- the living oracles given to us. They're saying, Moses told you these things. God was going to send somebody, Moses said, like me, him you'll hear. Whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And their hearts were turned back to Egypt. Saying to Aaron, make us gods before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. And they made golden calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, by the way, that they had just made. Think of the logic here. We make something and we go, ooh, cool here. It's the logic of idolatry to me is amazing. Rejoice in the works of their own hands. Now again, God is bigger than what we do. And if we have any worshipability in the things that we do, it shows us that we're wrong. God, look what I have done for you. No, no, no. Look what God has done for you. Always remember, God's hands are bigger than yours. God always wants to put into you more than we can understand. Now he says, Then God turned them and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, God gave them up to worship the host of heaven. They begot into astrology. Now, this is really unfortunate because our country once knew God. Now we're into astrology. I, I run into people, people, I'll talk to people. Well, what sign were you born under? I go, under the cross. Wow, they get really tweaky when you do that. Because the thing is, what sign were you born under? In other words, this is the mentality. Understand what astrology is. It's a substitute for God. In that God made you unique. He put in you certain abilities and gifts. You don't make who you are. You discover who you are. And the position of the planets and stars has nothing to do with your personality. I can prove it. Look at twins. If you know anybody that's a twin, maybe you're a twin in this room, you will notice oftentimes your personality is completely different than your twin is. The stars didn't move around that much in about a half a second. But they will say, what sign were you born under? As if the planet cosmos, the energy, that's the new buzzword by of the uh, uh, 2020s, that cosmic energy. Um, 
Well, the thing is, where they were at formed your personality. No, God formed your personality. You need to understand that. And that's why we need to pray and say, God, who am I? You know, we don't know. I'm always amazed by the different gifts people have. They can pick up a guitar and which is a couple of lessons, learn how to play. Other people, the only thing they can play is the radio. And I look at that and I realize that how is it that some people discover they're a musician where others discover that they're into science or they're into um, some other, uh, other field. Why do you have the propensity in your life for certain things where other things are boring. Well, that's because God made you that way. If we never seek to spend any time with God for him to reveal who we are, we'll never know who we are. And if you don't know who you are, believe me, the world will try to tell you. The world will take advantage of you not knowing who you are. The only way you're going to be a success is if you wash your teeth with shiny bright. That'll make the difference. Well, you can scrub. You can eat the whole tube of toothpaste. My kid came to me the other day and he said, you know what? And I go, what? And he goes, I used to eat toothpaste because it was sweet. Now I don't. I go, good. It doesn't make you anything. It might make your breath smell a little nicer. That might be good. But it doesn't make you anything. What you wear doesn't make you anything. Dress for success. Really? Well, that might be the way the world looks at you. But it doesn't change you. Well, it gives me pride. Well, that may not necessarily be a good thing. When we spend our time alone with the Lord and God reveals to us who we are, Moses did not know who he was. He was raised in Pharaoh's house. This is one of the things that Stephen, in our message last week, was pointing out to the Sanhedrin. Moses was raised in the very best of schools. He was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He was groomed in every way, every single skill that the Egyptians had at the time. He was even possibly the heir apparent to take the place of Pharaoh. Now, when you look at this, and again, remember, Pharaoh had a son who died in the plague, remember? The point is, is that Moses was skilled in every way. He decided to go out and check on his countrymen when he was 40 years old. He sees an Egyptian beating on a fellow Hebrew of his, and he went over, he conked the Egyptian, buried him in the sand. Didn't think anybody saw him. A little while later, he goes out, he finds two Hebrews fighting with each other. He said, brother and brother and your brother, don't fight with each other. He goes, what are you going to do? Kill us like you did the Egyptian, bury him? Moses realized he was found out. So he comes back to the palace, packs his stuff, gets in his, his uh, I don't know, twin Volucci chariot, and, and, and gets out of Dodge. He knew he was going to be found out. And so for 40 years, he spent his time on the backside of the wilderness. Stephen said, you had to deliver 40 years before Moses actually came back and did the signs 
that were done before Pharaoh, you could have been delivered 40 years ago, but because you did not recognize the time of your deliverance, you spent 40 more years. And this is what he repeats through the first part of Acts chapter 7, is that it takes you two times to recognize your deliverer. Well, so he points this out to them. And so he said, God delivered you now, 40 years later, by the hand of Moses, brings you out. And he brings them out, and Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments. God says, uh, you better get down from the mountain quickly, Moses, your people have gone awry. He comes down, after having this great supernatural experience, his face is glowing. He's got the tablets of stone under his arm. He comes down. He is just so blessed. He comes down and finds everybody dancing naked around a calf. It was only 40 days before that they heard God's voice from Mount Sinai. How quickly we can forget. And so God turned them over. He goes, enough. And he turned them over to the worship of heaven, astrology. And again, today, astrology is so... And by the way, the form of astrology that we have today did not come about to 130 A.D. Before then, it was uh, uh, very heavily mixed. Astrology was mixed in with the worship of Moloch. Uh, this was that uh, uh, bronze statue where they had offered their children up that were born out of out of uh, um, unmarried sex. They just they didn't have abortion the way they didn't kill their children the way we do, nice and sanitary today. But uh, they would just have the baby and then let it fry in the arms of of Moloch as it was placed in the fire. So he says, "Did you offer me slaughtered animals?" And sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? No. Yes, you took up the tabernacle of Moloch literally instead. The star of your God, Rephalam, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. God says, you know what? You just always like to go awry. And so I'm going to take you to the land of Babylon. By the way, there was a lot of things that happened to the children of Israel when they went to Babylon. Because not only was God's punishment on the land of, of Israel because they had forsaken seven years of Sabbath worship, they didn't let the, the land rest uh, for the time that they were supposed to. So he carried them away into the wilderness. Now, to Babylon. Now, also, the children of Israel who loved God were carried away as well. And that would include Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember the three thrown in the fiery furnace? It also included Daniel. Daniel knew the word of God really well. He'd studied it. That's one of the things he did. And he was praying, and he said, God, he said, you made all these promises to Abraham. He knew what God said concerning uh, the promises by the way, those promises that God makes to you as well, do you know what those promises are? You might want to spend some time in reading your Bible and knowing what God has promised you, that he will withhold no good thing from you. 
And if God takes something out of your life, that leaves a hole where God can put what he wants in your life. Sometimes we get so angry with God when he takes something out of our life. Oh God, I wanted that. God said, I got something a whole lot better for you. But God, I was satisfied with that cheap imitation ice milk. And God goes, I want to give you real ice cream made from real cream. Weird illustration, I know. Okay. But the thing is, I have found we're so capable of settling for so much less than God's best. God takes that out so he can give us what he wants us to have. And Daniel said, I know these promises you made. What will become of our nation? And God spoke to him and said, 77 year periods of time have been determined upon the people of Israel and the nation. The 69th year, Messiah will be cut off. And from the commandment that goes forward to restore and rebuild the walls and the temple in Jerusalem to the coming of the Messiah will be 69 seven-year periods of time. The Babylonian calendar was predicated upon a 360-day year. They they parted the other five days away. Uh, But on the exact day... On that Palm Sunday, exactly 69 seven-year periods of time from Nehemiah going and restoring and rebuilding the wall to Jesus making his triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday was the exact day. And that's why Jesus held them accountable. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you, but you would not. They were stiff-necked. Command these people, the Pharisees said, to shut up. Because they were crying out, save now, save now. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus said, if they were to shut up and not say anything, these very stones would cry out. Wow, singing stones. I, I would have liked to saw that. All these little rocks going, praise you, Lord, praise you, Lord. That'd be neat. If you ever go to Israel, it's the best souvenir that you can get for free. As you're descending into the city of Jerusalem, just where Jesus said, these very stones would cry out. When I was there, I picked up a bag of them and gave them to people in church several years ago because I said, these are the the stones that didn't cry out. Because they're there, they're free. And when you're there, you have everybody running up to you trying to sell you a souvenir, okay? But these rocks are great. Those stones that didn't cry out. The point is, is this. It was their day of salvation and they missed it. But also Daniel told them and knew about the Messiah that was going to come. That's why the kings of the east came to Jesus when he was born. Or a couple years after he was born, came to the house, it says. How did they know to come? How did they know to look for a Messiah? Because Daniel had told the wise men who he was in in uh, chorus with in Nebuchadnezzar's court that there was another king going to come. You never know how God's going to use you. But see, the problem is, it is interesting to me that Gentiles from the east came to pay homage to Christ where Herod, a Jew, would refuse to pay homage to Christ. It's really kind of amazing when you look at it, 
that they were blind. What blinds people? Well, a lot of things blind people to reality. Have you ever noticed that? I think money can blind people to reality. That's what's called bribes. And, and, and people for a certain amount of money know they should be doing something else, but they take an under-the-table deal to change justice or to change what is right. I believe sometimes what you know can blind you. Well, I have my PhD diploma hanging on the wall, and therefore I'm an intellectual, and because I'm an intellectual, I've I pre-programmed God out of my, my, my mental capacities, and I realize now the only true thing we can trust is science. Only problem is science keeps changing its mind. So how do you know? Well, these are the, there's just, religion can blind you to reality. Well, you know, I'm just going to keep on holding on to my lucky charms. I've got that rabbit's foot in my, my pocket. You know, I know it wasn't very lucky for the rabbit, but that's okay. I've got it in my pocket. Man, I'm cruising. I got it. I don't need God because I've got luck on my side. You find people that say, well, look at the good charitable deeds I've done. I, I, I wax my dog regularly. I, I, I give my money to the poor. I do this. I do that. I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a great citizen. I, I, I do all these things. Blind you to reality. Because, you know, I got some good news and I got some bad news for all you. Bar the rapture. Do you realize something? We're all going to die. Now, when you stop to think about that for a minute, we're all going to die. You drive by the cemetery out there. Over there by, by uh, uh, as you're coming into, into town over there on Kimberly Road, you see all those headstones on one side of the road, and the other side do not allow headstones because it's easier to mow the lawn. If you ever wonder why, that's that way. But you look at all those Oh, well, I used to call them non-voters, but I, I guess I found out in the last election a lot of them were still voting. But, but the thing is, it's that we're all going to die. Now, that's something that I usually don't think of getting up in the morning. That, hey, I think today at 2 o'clock, I'm going to die. Well, that happened to me. And I know that it's possible. The last thing I thought of on December 5th, when I got up in the morning, I'm going to die today. That was the last thing I thought. In fact, I told my wife, I said, I feel better today than I have in about four or five weeks after getting over COVID. I got a COVID clot to the heart and I died for two minutes. Now I I look at that. I I go, that's weird. That's the last thing I thought would happen, but we're all going to die. Now, what we come to church for is we celebrate the only known cure for death. Now, you have to think about that. You can't go to a drugstore and get something. It reminds me of the story I heard about a guy over in San Francisco, and they were taking him to the cemetery, and they didn't latch the, the casket down in the back of the hearse, and it was banging against the front seats and banging against the back doors. And the guy driving says, you know, we ought to stop and latch that thing down. And he goes, no, nah, we're almost there. Don't worry about it. Well, they come up to the next hill. It rolls back, hits the back doors. The back door of the coffin fly, or the, the casket comes out the back of the hearse, goes rolling down the street. 
wiggling around, crashes through a drugstore, runs right past the cashiers, all the way back to where the pharmacy is, smacks into the, into the desk back there. The pharmacist is looking over to the side. The guy inside sits up and says, you got anything to stop this coffin? Sorry. But you can go to a pharmacy and there's no cure for death. The only cure for death is in Jesus. And it ain't in religion. It ain't in those things because you see, it isn't what we do. Pride blinds us to reality that we're going to die someday. Well, again, he's reiterating to them You keep bragging about the temple, this holy place, as we read in chapter 6, or Moses. And yet Stephen's defense was not to go around the mulberry bush, but he was addressing it. Yes, Moses was here, and you didn't listen to him. And concerning the holy place, God spoke to Abraham in the wilderness. God spoke to Moses in the burning bush. So what you are idolizing is not real. Our fathers, he says, verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, and he appointed instructions to Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. By the way, the only place in the Bible this appears is right here, where the tabernacle of meeting that the word talks about this right here. This tabernacle that was in the wilderness, Moses had seen. So when he came down off the mountain, he not only had the Ten Commandments, but he also had the blueprints for a temple for the people. That's interesting. Stephen had that insight here. Which our fathers, having received it in turn, brought it with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David. By the way, it's interesting here. The word Joshua is the Hebrew. In the Greek, it's the word Jesus, who brought with Jesus into the land, or literally into the land of the Gentiles or into the world. You know, Joshua delivered into the hands of the Hebrews, the land that God had for them. Jesus delivers into your hands the promises that he has for you. So we have to also always look at the the parallels. You know, the Hebrews would read the Bible. They would read it, obviously, for what it said. They would then look at it from the spiritual aspect. And then they would look at it from the prophetic aspect. So what does it say, obviously? What's the spiritual application? And what is the future application of that? Verse 46, who found favor before God, asked asked to find a dwelling for God uh, of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. Verse 48, however, the Most High does not dwell in temples with, made with men's hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what place, a, a place of my rest? 
has my hand not made all of those things? So again, we, we find that God will not dwell in buildings made with men's hands, but he'll dwell in you and me. I like that. You know, you're far prettier than any building. Buildings are just made out of stucco and wood. And to think that that makes them holy, ooh. You know what makes this building holy? I've told you this before. What makes this building holy is you who are holier in it. When you walk out of here, it's just an empty box. These people, these different religions around town, different places, oh, they have their temple. Do you know God will not dwell in those buildings? Oh, I wish they'd tell their people the truth. He doesn't dwell in buildings made with men's hands. He dwells in you. This is the point that Stephen is making. This holy place that Stephen was desecrating, according to the liars, he's saying, look, God will not dwell in a building box anyway. What's the difference? He will dwell in you, though. And friends, that's something that, again, that's what being born again is about. That's where you've asked God to come and live inside of you, to make your habitation his habitation, to make your hands his hands, to be about your father's business. And so instead of spending your life trying to figure out who you are, being manipulated by the world, God says, I'll show you who you are. Let me get in control of you. And as a matter of fact, I'm not only going to use those talents that I've given you, I'm going to give you a whole lot more. I like that about God. See, God always gives us back more than we could ever give him. I've had people say, you mean if I become a Christian, man, I'm going to have to give up getting drunk and hitting trees and stuff with my car? Yeah, that's exactly right. But God's got so much more for you if you'll let him do that. Now, he says, and by the way, I look at this, you know, you got to look at Steve, uh, Stephen's tactfulness. He started off very, very cordial in talking to them. But I can just see the scowl on these people in the Sanhedrin. Again, the same people that were probably most of them were there during Jesus' interrogation. So look what he says in verse 51. Notice the nice, warm words that he says. Are you ready for this? You stiff neck and uncircumcised in your heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Whoa. Who's on trial here? They were judging him. Now he flips the tables and says, you're the one that's causing the problem. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become betrayers and murderers. You have have received the law by direction of the angels and have not kept it. When they heard those things, they were cut to the heart. They gnashed him with their teeth. Now that doesn't mean they came up and chewed on him like a piece of jerky. What that means is You know, different cultures have ways of being rude to other people. Do you know that? Do you know if you're in the Orient and you sit down and you cross your legs or whatever, and somebody from the Orient sees the bottom of your feet, that is a high insult. And by the way, even in Hawaii and and some other places, 
Because the streets are dirty, they don't have those nice big trucks with the bristly brushes. They go, and you can't park here on Fridays and Thursdays as that big truck comes by, sprays a little water, and then throws the trash all over everywhere else. But anyway, as that thing's coming along, it cleans up everything. Well, they don't have those in foreign countries. And so a lot of times their animals will defecate on the ground and people just walk in it. Pretty soon it's all tracked in. That's why when you go into somebody's house, often in Hawaii, often in other cultures in the Orient, you will always take off your shoes because your shoes have been in contact with like really nasty stuff. So you take your shoes off. Well, if you're sitting down and they see the bottom of your feet, you're like saying, look at the nastiness. That's what I think of you. That's what they do. You have to be careful in different cultures. Now, this is why Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are the best for me. And if eating meat offends my brother, I won't eat meat. Not that there's anything wrong with the meat, because we know if it was offered to an idol, hey, idols aren't real. Give me a hamburger. But you got to remember, they don't see things that way. And they're steeped in culture. and So you have to be sensitive to them. And so it's not that uh, if you build a wall before you can share the gospel with them, you will not reach them. So you adapt to their customs. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 uh, about men having long hair and women having their head covered. He said, But we, the church, have no such custom as these. He doesn't say it's a sin. He said it's a custom. And depending on what culture you're in, you need to be sensitive to their culture. Well, that's all right. Different cultures, I say, have different ways of showing hatred to somebody. Now, in America, we have a one hand finger gesture that sometimes you'll see while you're driving your car. They're expressing their dissatisfaction in your driving practices. If you know what I'm saying. The Hebrew culture didn't do that. In fact, if you were to use an American gesture like that in Israel during this time, they would look at like, what's that about? What they did to show their hatred is they would do this. And they gnash their teeth. Oh, I'll kill you. You know what's weird? The Bible says those that go to hell, it's a place of weeping because I believe they're weeping because they miss what God had to offer them, but they're gnashing their teeth as well. It's a place, the Bible says, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping because they missed it and still in hatred towards God by their gnashing of teeth. It says they gnashed their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, being filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. By the way, in the Old Testament, when a priest would stand, that was a posture of interceding. I think that's interesting. Um, oftentimes, you will find them standing in, in, in their ministry position. And so it says, standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
And they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran after him in one accord. They probably smashed the car up pretty good. But anyway, it says that they ran after him in one accord, one big gang. They came and grabbed him and took him out. And took him out of the city and stoned him. And the witness laid, and, and, and the witness is laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. By the way, the reason why we have, I believe, this record of Acts chapter 6 and 7 is because Saul very possibly could have been in this meeting. And that's why we have such detailed accuracy of it, because we know that Paul then converted to Christianity and was a major game changer. And we'll get into that next week in chapter 8. But when we see this here, they laid their coats while they were killing Stephen. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, friends, I think this is really important. You need to write this down. It'll help you. I write, when I come across key doctrinal issues, when I'm trying to defend my faith, I shared this with you before. I remember when I was 18 years old, some people knocked at the door. They were very nicely dressed. I was looking at them through the screen door, and they were telling me about a new gospel. Have you heard another gospel of Jesus Christ? And then I remembered in the Bible it said, beware of anybody coming to you with another gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm going, wait a minute, something's not right here. And they started saying a lot of things, but because I didn't know God's word very well, I couldn't defend my faith. And I would go, well, yeah, but the Bible says, well, where does it say? I don't know. So I write things down when I come across certain things that I know are repetitive. Now, remember this. Cults are cults. They just change the jargon around a little bit. But they still believe basically two things. Number one, Jesus is not God. And hell is not an eternal place. It's a place of annihilation. Uh, It's a beautiful place. I talked to a Mormon missionary one time. Oh, hell's a beautiful place. You'd kill yourself just to go there. His exact words. I still remember. I said, what? What are you reading? The Bible says it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a lake of fire that burns forever. That don't sound like party time to me. And so I ask him. Well, because they believe in three different levels of heaven, they misquote a verse. Paul said, I was caught up in the third heaven. I beheld God in his glory. He was addressing a Grecian culture in those days with the Romans. They believed in three heavens. The heavens where the birds fly, the atmosphere the the heavens where the heavenly bodies were the planet moon sun cosmos and then the third heaven is where the gods dwelt and paul says i was caught up in the third heaven i beheld god in his glory that's what the bible says no they, they've changed that and said no there's three different levels of heaven there's the heavens where just the average joe goes or and if you're really bad then you go to hell but that's still really a good place then there's heaven number one where you go then the heaven number two where the good people go and jack mormons things like that and then there's heaven number three where if you have gone through the progression through the temple that's why we have them here 
sealed in the temple, do your temple ritual, your baptisms, and all these things. Then you'll progress to the third heaven where you will become a God yourself someday. And when people pray on that planet, you will be given, they will be praying to you. Mormons today, when they say, let's pray to Heavenly Father. Have you ever talked to him? I have. Do you know who they're praying to? Adam, who fell in the garden. And Adam didn't want to see his wife stay that way, so he deliberately ate of the tree, not in rebellion to God, but to join her in her fallen state so they could go through the progressions and become God themselves someday over their own planets. They use the same words we use, but with completely different meanings. You need to be aware of it. So when we say Jesus Christ, depending on what group you're talking to, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus Christ is nothing more than Michael the Archangel. If you're talking to a Mormon, Jesus Christ is the brother of Lucifer. Yes, I know, it's weird. Now, real quick, real quick, I want to put this caveat in here. I've talked to Mormons who don't believe that. They call themselves Mormons. They said, I don't believe Satan and Jesus are brothers. Their church does, but they don't. Now, I'm not doing this to diss on religions. I'm doing this to tell you, when you talk to somebody, you need to be able to communicate. I remember looking through the screen door. I was so frustrated because I know what they were saying was not true. Who is Jesus? Well, he's half-brother of Lucifer. If you get into the Middle Eastern religion, we're all Jesus. There's, there's Buddha, Mohammed, I'm Jesus, you're Jesus, cuckoo, cuckoo, we all grew together. That's the problem. So, Stephen was calling out to God saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The idea of soul sleep is not in the Bible. As Jesus did, and by the way, if you look at this parallel between what Stephen is saying here and what Jesus said, it's really amazing because Jesus said, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Jesus said that from the cross. Now we find Stephen saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He didn't say, now, take care of my spirit while I go to sleep for 2,000 years. That's soul sleep. That's your Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists. Those people believe in soul sleep. Not in the Bible. In fact, we remember in Luke 8, I believe it's a chapter, yeah, it's Luke 8, I think 20, verse 22. Jarius, rich man, comes to Jesus. And he said, will you come and pray for my daughter? She's grievously ill. And while he's talking to Jesus, a couple of guys come, his servant, and said, don't trouble the master, your daughter has died. And Jesus looks at him and said, let's go anyway. So Jesus, Jarius, go to the house where the mourners were already, you know, they were doing their thing. And Jesus said, oh no, she's just sleeping. They laughed him to scorn, it says. The disciples didn't. And so he took a couple of his disciples with him. And by the way, if you want to laugh at the things God does, don't expect to see any more. They didn't laugh. They went into the the house and he looked at this little girl and he said, daughter, arise. It's only sad. And do you know what the Bible says? Her spirit returned to her. Really? Isn't it weird? It doesn't say, and her spirit woke up inside of her. It says her spirit returned to her. All the way through the Bible, you will find the spirit departs at death. The Old Testament, Elijah prayed for a little boy who had died. 
The Bible says he came back to life, his spirit returned to him. So Old Testament or New, First Kings, or whether you're looking at, at the book of Luke, you're, you're going to find the same thing. Or here, he commends his spirit to go to uh, be with the Lord. Then he knelt down, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Oh, but right here it says he fell asleep. His flesh fell asleep. His body fell asleep. We're all going to die. And by the way, if that was to come to you today, where would you go? I think it's a real important question. Yesterday, unfortunately, uh, was going and uh, going down to the falls, and they closed the road. And uh, they said, no, we've had a major wreck at the top of the grade yesterday about 1 or 2 o'clock. And they said, there's been fatalities. And I said, oh, no. And so we were turned away. And and, and I, I thought about that, and, and they opened the road back up, and I went by the car, and it was just totally smashed. And I went, how sad. That person got up yesterday morning never dreaming that by one o'clock in the afternoon they would no longer be a resident of this earth. That's why the Bible says today is the appointed day of salvation. Today, right now. Never put off tomorrow what you can do today concerning God. Because God is a giving God, wants to give you more than you ever dreamed possible. You're going to trade in something that you can't keep, your life, for something you'll never lose, your life. That's what God does. Stephen said, Lord, forgive them. What did Jesus say when they were hammering the spikes in his hand? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. This is what Peter, excuse me, this is what Stephen was saying as well. You see, he realized It was their lost sinful condition doing this to him. You see, this is a movement of the Holy Spirit, friends. One of the things when we pray and we ask Christ into our life, God gives us the Holy Spirit. You know what the Holy Spirit does? Gives us a love for the lost. You know, I know a lot of people say, well, you know, they're going to die and go to hell. You're good. They need to go there. That's the old sin nature, friends. That's why I really believe no Christian should ever look at anybody and say, go to hell. If anything, we need to say, go to heaven. They're getting quite a crowd up. We need to, too. Go to heaven. Well, the fact is, the Holy Spirit, as you look at Jesus in the Gospels, and Jesus seeing the multitudes had compassion on them. Compassion is key to ministry. God had compassion on you and me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I like that. God saw me in my lost, stumble, bumbling condition and said, I'll save you if you want to be saved. I go, I was five years old. I said, yeah. It's funny. I remember the sermon I got saved on. It's the weirdest thing. I don't remember a lot about being five years old, but I remember that sermon. Real fast, I'll tell it to you. Little boy made a boat. He loved his boat. He spent all the time. He painted it. had a little canal in his backyard. And he tied it up when his mom told him to come in for dinner. And he tied it up. Came out after dinner. It was gone. It had gotten loose from the string and it floating down the river. Well, it just so happened a guy about a quarter mile down the road 
had a pawn shop and he was out watering his backyard, saw this little boat floating down the canal. He goes, hey, I can put that in my pawn shop window. And he reached out, grabbed the boat and brought it down and put it in his pawn shop window. Well, the little boy was devastated and, and he was he was heartbroken. His mom asked him, well, why don't we go downtown and, and, and we'll, we'll go down and we'll, we'll go to the store. So he goes down and as he's walking by the pawn shop window, he looks through the window and there is his boat. He goes in, he says, mister, that is my boat. I made that boat. And the pawn shop owner said, no, it's my boat. I found it floating down the river. If you want that boat, it's going to cost you $5. I think that was the number it was back when I was a kid. Now it'd be probably, if you want that boat, probably a quarter million dollars. I don't know. So the kid goes home, sells everything that he's got to his friends, his marbles, his frogs, his sister, all those things to his friends. Gets the money, goes down, gives the man the money, redeems his boat. And I remember the minister saying, you are the little boat. And God made you. And you floated down the stream of life until the devil grabbed you and put you in a window for sale to anybody that would buy it. And Jesus gave up everything that he had, the worship of heaven, everything, to come down and buy you back. And you know, at five years old, that made sense to me. <laughs> and I said, and he said, do you want to accept the Lord? And I said, yeah, I, 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 I'm a lost boat. Well, this morning, I just invite you to consider Christ. We're all going to die if the Lord comes and raptures us. I just want to be sure you're ready if that day comes for you. This morning, if you've never prayed and received Christ as your Savior, we're going to pray right now. If you're tired of the way you lived, you don't want another 10 years like you just had, five years like you just had, pray. God will do it. Let's pray. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I am sorry for the way that I have lived. I know I'm a sinner. And I know you will save me. I believe that your blood covered my sins. And Jesus, you rose from the dead to give me life eternal. From this day forward, I commit my life into your hands. Make me the best I can be for you. Thank you for eternal life. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit that I'll love people that normally I would not love. I'll have boldness to talk to people that normally I wouldn't say a thing to. And thank you that I get to spend eternity with you in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.